Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. The Cold Omaha Podcast Network. You are Locked On Timberwolves, your daily podcast on the Minnesota Timberwolves, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And running. Now. All right. Hello and welcome to another cross promo edition locked on Wolves Wired. Here in the studio with me, co host Tim Fakeless, producer Tom Schreier, who does not have the privilege of a microphone. I hope maybe. Uh, as well as the great Britt Robeson and, and Andy Grimsrud. How are you doing, people? Great. Doing well. Let's, uh, let's just get right into it. What the hell happened last night? You guys were all at the at the game. I was following on my app late. Uh, the Wolves end up losing to the Utah Jazz, ninety-four to ninety-two. Outscored in the fourth quarter, twenty-five to twelve. Anybody have any any idea? I don't know. I did. I was. At well, home I mean, doing I don't think things. it's uh, what happened has happened at various times throughout the season. So I think what happened is that. Uh, Utah began to batten down a little bit. Uh, they began to really want to win the game. The Wolves began to uh, be under a double-digit lead and began to press a little bit. Uh, the turnovers that weren't happening in the first three quarters suddenly occurred. Um, I thought Ricky Rubio made one of the uh, signature game-changing moves when he kept on trying. He, he First, he made a really nice play. He went and tried to poke steal the ball a couple of times and got uh, the guy he was guarding from Utah. I think it was probably George Hill, Hill but uh, I'm mm-hmm. not positive. But anyway, he, he 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 bumped him off his game, and he thought that he had gotten fouled while going for the poke steal, that Hill had kind of moved him aside or whatever. But the bottom line was he didn't get the call. He kept on going at it, and when he didn't get the call and Hill had regained possession, he almost, I think, deliberately fouled Hill. Wow. Um, with about eight or nine seconds on the clock, and uh, Hill went to the line. He's an 80 point, 80% free throw shooter and hit a couple, and, and Rubio threw one into the stands, and then uh, Thibodeau had a temper tantrum because Rubio threw one into the stands and decided he wanted uh, Andrew Wiggins to run the the point, and Wiggins dribbled the ball until there was about six seconds left in the uh, possession and <laughs> launched a, a jumper and clanked it, and uh, they went down and scored again. And I mean, none of these things... Anybody who's watched the Wolves for a while, nothing I've said thus far is really that surprising. What happened with Bielitsa? Like, did he just fall over? Well, Bielitsa just literally fell down. Yeah. <laughs> fell on his can during a that jump ball. New. During a jump new. ball. That was new. That was new, although not unexpected. <laughs> I, I think I saw Steve McPherson, who was not at the game as this collapse was happening, tweet out, Wolves gonna wolf, which is... I mean, uh, it, it's almost a verb at this point Benlin because it's happened third, before. Someone said the third quarter is now the fourth quarter. That's my call. 
Yeah, I don't know what else to add to it other than that it was uh, a lot of the same things we've seen. Um, Tibbs always emphasizes how the fourth quarter is different. And unfortunately for the Timberwolves, a lot of the time that means that they, uh, I don't know if that's some type of self-fulfilling prophecy or, or somehow the team uh, mentally goes into a worse place. But one theory I had is that maybe they're just plain exhausted because now they've got guys averaging upwards of 37, 38 minutes per game. And like last night, Utah, I know, had still had Boris Diaw and Joe Johnson on the court into the middle of the fourth quarter. Gordon Hayward came in late, had more energy. I think he had one of those big steals out court. And I don't know. I just think they're managing their rotations in a way that some of the top guns on the other team are are less worn out when the big plays happen. But well, that's just one theory. Speaking of temper tantrum, sources tell me that Krasinski, John Krasinski, asked mm-hmm. a question about that post game. He did. And what was his? What was Thibodeau's? I thought it was answer? an excellent question. Uh, you know, it's the kind of question that uh, you don't know when you're going to need to ask it in the course of the season. Um, it could have been this game. It could be two weeks from now. It could have been two weeks ago. Um, the team is now eleven and twenty-six, uh, so we're very close to the midpoint, and uh, they are, I think. If not regressing, uh, still doing two steps forward, two steps back, and and running in place. But what Krasinski asked, who's by the way excellent in my, I have a lot of respect for John Krasinski yep. as a beat writer, uh, and he said, um, uh, "Do you first? He, you know, he mentioned the team's record in crunch time situations, or maybe Kent Youngblood of the Strib did. Somebody did, and uh, Tibbs didn't have a lot of answers as he was being asked these things." And then Krasinski basically said, do you think that your, you know, sideline behavior is contributing, you know, to the negativity? And Tibbs um, dismissed that fairly curtly out of hand and said uh, you can't, he called it excuse making and that they need to, you know, do their job, he said pretty plainly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might have been the last question of the press conference. It was. I listened back to it after and I think if I recall... I read. I, I didn't go into the locker room after the game. I don't know if either of you did, but the the players the Is players backed up what Tibbs was saying for whatever that might be worth. Yeah, Is none that... of them are mad at him. Like they're all like, we went... actually Towns didn't want to admit he went rogue, or like people were going rogue. rogue. That was about yeah. it. Yeah, but that was Tibbs' words. And that's happened before, even. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing that one of my uh, suppositions, theories, whatever you want to call it, is that. Uh, you have three guys who are all being lauded pretty consistently. Um, they all have a shelf full of uh, awards and plaudits and uh, and predictions that they're going to make a phenomenal amount of money and they're going to become NBA stars if they're not already. With Towns, it's uh, Hall of Fame talk rather than all-star talk. But uh, they're all – the expectation levels are really high for them. And they're all pretty well-adjusted, confident kids. And so when things are going bad, I think all of them think, I can do this. And they try to do it a little bit more than what is in the script. And it drives Tibbs crazy because that's what he calls going rogue. Um, and, you know, and, and, and that's a problem. I thought uh, there's a guy uh, on Twitter who basically tracks games uh, – Nick, I can't remember his last name now, but he, he I, I tweeted out something on it today. Noticed a point where um, 
when the ball went to Derek Favors and he he put up a shot and uh, it went out of the rim um, that uh, Gobert was able to go uh, back door on Towns's coverage and tip the ball in for the game winner essentially, and that Towns's uh, inability to see um, Gobert peripheral division because of his uh, uh, positioning on the court um, was a factor. And I thought that that to me, as much as anything else we're talking about here, is what drives the coach crazy, what will drive us crazy when we, you know, occasionally I'll go back and, and look at games and, you know, and, and run the slow-mo on my DVR. And I'll notice, you know, Towns looked away on the pass. The guy slipped in pretty quickly. It was a, a minor misstep that cost two points. Um that happens a lot across the starting lineup. It isn't just the three kids. Rubio and Jang are as guilty of it as others. Uh, there's just really quick, minor mental mistakes that open opportunities. And um, what's ironic about that is that if this was last year or another year and we were all sitting around, we go, you know, we need to get somebody who will make sure that doesn't happen anymore. And the first name everybody would come up with is Tom Thibodeau. Exactly. The play that stood out to me that I talked about yesterday in the Washington game, and maybe you guys saw it, maybe you guys didn't, was uh, when Beal was trying to go around a screen from Gortat and Gorgie stepped out to help him. And Gortat had a free open lane to the basket right. and Wall throws the alley-oop pass. That was so wide open. And he was just wide open. Is yeah. that, you know, I don't know or claim to know what the Wolves' coverage is in that situation, but it seems like that's a misstep similar to the Towns one you just described that continues to haunt the team. What I want to know is why isn't Brandon Rush played pretty well in the Washington game, didn't he? And played one <laughs> one minute last night. What's uh? What's going on there? Why, but why Boz over uh, Brandon Rush? That's kind of a great question that I don't think anybody's able to answer right now. We can just guess at it, uh, and we—that's something that gets discussed a lot. I think I well, I, he had turf toe for a while. I, I think it's a little bit unknown how long that actually lasted. He seemed fine against Washington, but I know in the first couple games of the year, Rush was playing, and if you look at those kind of on-off net rating numbers rush is right at the top of the good guys in other words when he's played the game has generally gone well in limited minutes some theories i think are that thibodeau is uh simply trying to teach now and he's disappointed he's so disappointed maybe that he's just in you know, a stubborn you know we're not going to help these guys with veterans at all we're just going to keep running it back i think another reasonable theory is that rush has simply been a disappointment to tibbs behind the scenes probably more than anything um, sometimes he looks a little checked out on the sidelines. There's some chicken or the, egg, or the egg question there in terms of what came first, you know, him getting benched or him uh, having a bad attitude. Yeah. I don't know if he has a bad attitude. It's, it's just kind of speculation because, really, the Wolves could use some stabilizing players and he's not getting uh, not getting many minutes. And Shabazz has hardly been good. and he's, he's kind of erratic and sometimes gives him a burst, but I don't know. Do they end up moving him, you think, Britt? Shabazz? Shabazz? Uh I think the trade deadline, I'll duck the question, I think the, t- the trade deadline will tell a lot about what Tibbs is going to do. Um, the open question is whether or not he wants to change the landscape. Uh, thus far, for an 11-26 and 26 team, 
and a guy who is used to winning 60% of his games, he has changed almost nothing. Yeah. His only lineup changes have been injury-related. He has not demoted anybody in terms of the starters. Um, and if he's had demotions at all, they've gone in the direction of killing the veterans' minutes in favor of the young kids' minutes. Um, if that continues, um, you know, there, there is a philosophy that you repeat something to the point of shame, numbness, whatever you want to call it, so they finally figure it out. And at that point, if they don't figure it out, then you're free to either trade them or make the kind of wholesale changes or sign the kind of people you want to sign. The Wolves have a lot of cap space. Um, so I guess in answer to your question about Bozzi, there are signposts of when teams traditionally uh, take stock and change strategy. One of them is in February at the trade deadline. Um, or the all-star break just before is another one, kind of. I mean, but they kind of go together. And so there's been no in-season change. Will there be a change at the break? Uh, many people probably expect, well, Bozzi and Rubio have been the two names that I've heard most frequently. They're the most logical. Um, I think Bozzi's value is not high. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, he's, uh, I think that, you know, he's, he is a one trick pony. Sometimes that pony performs beautifully and sometimes, you know, it breaks a leg. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, I, I guess the Rubio trade speculation makes a little more sense because you put Dunn out there at that point in time and you're not tanking, but you are ensuring a good draft pick uh, and you are uh, signaling that uh, this season has been a failure that needs to end on a high note. Uh, well, well, when we left the studio yesterday, it was reported that the Wolves would ra- uh, waive John Lucas, which is a totally irrelevant move. But the first thing that popped into my head, it gives you a little more uh, Flexibility with the roster, I guess, to absorb players' salaries. Strictly salary. dollars and cents, I'm afraid. Was I mean, it, was even then, de- the, the dollars a- are relatively puny. But if if you keep Lucas on the roster after January 10th, that, I think okay, it, was, it was a deadline. Then they had thing. to basically sign him for the rest of the season. Got it. Thinking maybe five hundred thousand dollars prorated. They're probably you know maybe it's four hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars or something. You know, in terms of Glenn Taylor's. Uh, pocketbook and Tom Thibodeau's uh, salary cap budget, it's minuscule. But, you know, maybe every little bit helps. and Or maybe, you know, they go after, you know, an Alonzo G or get involved in some of these guys who, you know, get uh, waived or traded or dumped as Lucas was dumped. That's an intriguing name. Tim, you could probably tell me this. Alonzo G, a much better 2K player than a player in real life, yes. don't you, wouldn't you say? Anyone that's athletic and can shoot is a good 2K player. <laughs> J.R. Smith, one of the all-time greats on NBA 2K. Yeah. <laughs> Which means Levine is king. Levine is fantastic. JaVale McGee can't shoot, but he's tall, so he gets that going for him. There's a lot of them. Levine's stat line you know, leads the team in scoring 24 points, 10 of 21 shooting. But, Look at uh, his fourth quarter. Was it bad? I have it pulled it up. Bad. I have it pulled up. And it, it's uh, it's got to drive you nuts, Britt, I'm sure. 
Uh, well, Levine in the fourth quarter, three of nine from the field, one of four from three-point range, seven points, led the team in points, negative 13 and plus-minus. Led the team, well, didn't lead the team, had the team's worst plus-minus yet again. Missed the game-winning shot. Missed the, well, missed the important— yeah, game-winning shot, game-tying. Got chased off the three. Could have been the game-winning shot if he'd gone up three. Uh, Who chased him off of it? Joe Ingles. Okay. Who's actually mm-hmm. the guy looks like a you know a walking lunch bucket, but uh, you know essentially uh, that is well described. You know at the same time he Levine just toasted Rodney Hood the first four or five minutes. Hood had two quick fouls. Then when Hood came back in the second quarter, he immediately got a third. He had to sit again. Um, and Zach Levine's offense took a really good two guard Rodney Hood out of the game for most of the game. All that said, the fourth quarter Zach Levine played badly. Uh, he, he had a lot of company, but uh, he did not play well. And Joe Ingles, when he was on the floor, did as good a job as you can expect a, a lumpen proletariat white guy to do on uh, <laughs> Zach Levine, you yeah. know, matched up with him that way. What, uh, Andy, what it was, you know, the, the Washington game was really good for uh, Wiggins, and then yesterday he goes 6 of 19 shooting. What were some of your... You know, what are some notable responses from your tweet after the Washington game that you uh, sent uh, out? There's just a what's lot What's of, the tweet, first of all? I'll pull it up. Uh, I think Conti- I continue with your answer. a little bit. I mean, basically, uh, to me— <laughs> Well, you called everybody who thinks one thing wrong, so— If you watched Friday's game and were anything but impressed with Andrew Wiggins, then you've got a bias. That's—I mean, that's—to me, that's undeniable, like— Okay, yeah, didn't have many rebounds or assists, but when a guy gets, what, 15 field goals or something, he was scoring one after another. Uh, keeping the Wolves in that game, they were getting kind of blown off the court early in the third quarter, and they ended up, they were leading going into the fourth. And uh, I mean, if he can't win you over with a game like that, generally speaking, I mean, you just, there's nothing really he can do. I mean, you're basically saying he needs to get five six assists to go along with his 41 points and he's you know he's playing trying to <laughs> he share needs the, to be james trying Harden. to share the floor with two other 21 year olds who want to score 20 30 points i mean there's that's that was a great andrew wiggins game for now i mean for where he's at so um the yeah tr- and i mean last night he didn't hit he didn't connect on as many shots and that wasn't as good a game he had a few more assists and rebounds and stuff like that but the tweet is this let's belabor this there are nights when wiggins deserves criticism but if you watch that game and felt yourself ripping him you're wrong yeah i don't know that's, fair. That. that's totally fair totally. i feel like i feel like on games when and i don't have the the statistics handy to back me up but it feels like a lot of the games when he struggles from the field he's taking a lot more of those pull off jumpers off the screen rather than trying to, trying to start his damage off inside. I, I can't imagine many of his makes. I'm not sure what his percentage. Uh, 6 of 19 last night. Yeah, I can't imagine too many of them were off of those shots. Like I, I remember a few Euro step layups. and He had a couple of kind of bunnies that normally go down. At least right. one I remember that was right in front of us where it, he just missed the layup. His Euro step worked perfectly and he missed the wide open layup right. in front of him. But Overall, I, I don't think the shot chart was too different for him other than that he had Rudy Gobert. He thankfully drew fouls most of the time where he challenged Gobert. But, uh, shot just three of seven from the line at that Yeah, field. that's been yeah. perplexing. The field goal. Yeah, his free throw shooting is well open to criticism. I don't know. I think he went from a post-up, featured post-up player as a rookie to last year. I think his season was sort of just a cruise control. I don't think he really was challenged to do much differently. I think he kind of just was out there and got shots but this year he's obviously being challenged to become a perimeter playmaker uh which has not been his job description at any point in his nba career to date 
Um, and he shows flashes of being great. Sometimes he's kind of decent. Sometimes he's not good at all. But, uh, you know, there aren't that many guys that can do the things that he does do well. And for a guy to be able to go into every game and know that he's going to get a whole bunch of good looks, <laughs> that's a nice starting point. I mean, the odds that he gets better uh, at connecting on shots and reading defenses, I think, are pretty high. I think it's an astute point you make that he is very – he's not – nearly getting as much post-up opportunities uh, as he used to. Britt, do you see the same thing? Yeah, I think what, I, what I've come to the conclusion on is individual analysis of Towns, Levine, and Wiggins is exhausting. That's because <laughs> uh, essentially what you have is you have trump cards on either side and a lot of ammunition on both sides. Somebody can always say, look, they're 21 years old. They could say 20 last year, 19 the year before. But the bottom line is they're exceedingly young players who are doing things at their age that are phenomenal. That's a trump card for all three of them. Um, on the other side, you can say they haven't won shit. And, they're, <laughs> and they are regressing as a team. You know, if these guys are all that and they could synergize that talent, then this team would be something. It's not. That's on them. That's a trump card on the other side. You can say these people, for all their skills, have not figured out how to make each other better and have not listened enough to the teachings of one of the best coaches in the NBA to figure it out. So you've got those two things that go back and forth. Add on to that the enormous inconsistency all three show. They all have great games where if you choose to embrace that player and decide that this guy is the guy, you are reconvinced. And then they follow it up with a game that just sucks out loud. And everybody who doesn't think that guy's the guy is reconvinced. And so this battle wages back and forth, and I think everybody's being held to a draw on this because um, – they remain incredible prospects. The team remains a bad team. And they are occasionally showing evidence of much improvement, and they are occasionally showing evidence that they remain stubbornly slow learners who may never get it. So, you know, you can work that angle. I have, I mean, I've spent way too many columns basically trying to parse it for myself. On balance, I've been a huge praiser of Towns, a relatively regular praiser of Wiggins, and a pretty severe critic of Levine. Well, that's been turned on its head this year. I've been wrong about Levine this year, I think, Levine of the three in terms of realizing the the level of his potential is ahead of the other two in terms of what he's done this year. Whether or not that will eventually be the final outcome or whether or not um, he will continue to have that be that way remains to be seen. But I think if you're judging on a curve, you know, because you can't put Levine up against Towns and expect Levine to be equal to Towns. Sure. Uh, but if you're judging on a curve, Levine is the best of the three this season relative to what we expected, at least what I expected, certainly. Towns, his lack of defense is pretty phenomenal. Uh, you know, I mean, it really is. It's, 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 yeah. a, it's a damn shame. And uh, and Wiggins, I think the biggest knock on Wiggins is that um, he sometimes he seems to check out. He yeah. doesn't, ev- you know, evince a, a consistent effort. And that's, you know, any 
guy sitting in a in an armchair watching the team, casual observer or not, they can tell when somebody's not really, you know, battening down and working hard. And that's been the knock on Wiggins since high school. Um, you know, and, and there is evidence. He goes, he has big games. You know, he goes up against uh, Jabari Parker and, and uh, the Greek freak in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, when Milwaukee came here and went nuts, he always plays Cleveland well. Uh, when he seems to have... Uh, motivation um, he is a phenomenal player all that said I totally agree with Andy that um, you 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 mock and belittle consistently mock and belittle any or all of these three people at your peril you know they you, they will make you look bad and that's why it's it's so fraught that Wiggins and Levine are so redundant in terms of their skill set but if you trade one of them you could really get burned uh, maybe they need to trade someone. I'm not sure Levine's ego can take coming off the bench after the way he got jerked around his first two years, and I don't think you can take Wiggins off the bench either. I think he'll head for Toronto. So anyway, that's my long answer. And the only thing I would say to to wrap that up is uh, the discussion on those guys is always about offense, and their offense is pretty good. I mean, even team performance-wise, it's their defense. The starting five is defensive rating is worse than any team in the NBA. I mean, they does the starting group, including Rubio on the court, I don't even know what, I think the number might be about a 100, 111 on NBA.com, but it's worse than every single team. So, whatever you think of Wiggins not getting assists or his field goal percentage, yeah. whatever, whatever you're nitpicking with that or, you know, something if you have a problem with the way Levine's playing or Towns is playing, their offense is not the thing that's holding them back at this point. I suppose you could argue their offense should be just phenomenal, but I don't know. Overall, their defense is the issue, and that is, uh, you know, when some of those guys are off the court, particularly Towns and Levine, the team is performing pretty well, especially on defense. So that's that's kind of a problem. Timmy, I like- agree with everything. the The thing that came up, <laughs> seriously, I do. But the thing that kept crossing my mind uh, was a guy that's not even really being mentioned, and he was sort of the. He's sort of the epitome of everything we've talked about when it comes to, you know, you've got a lot of ammunition on either side, whether you're for him or against him. Ricky Rubio, uh, last night, shot five of seven. So on that end, you're able to, uh, you know, if you're a Ricky Rubio fan, you're able to feel pretty good. Still had, what, seven assists. On the other end, I feel like George Hill gave him serious problems towards the end of the game. You mentioned it earlier. He's a, Part of it's that George Hill is just an incredibly underrated player that can physically jerk people around, but on the defensive end, he struggled, and that's something that Rubio supporters have been able to... Cling to? Yeah, cling to, exactly. Um, what I want to know, and I'm, I'm changing the subject a little bit, uh, is when Wiggins became the primary ball handler towards the end of the game what's what is the advantage at that point to keep rubio on the floor <laughs> when he didn't pass well, levine passed the ball in especially when george hill is giving him the kinds of problems that he was on defense yeah. what's his what's the advantage to keeping him out there well, who's well i think the first question when trying to answer that question is who do you have out there instead right i'm that's what i'm wondering too and, well obviously done i mean it, tibbs doesn't do this but I, 
as crazy as it sounds, I would work offense, defensive substitutions against some of the bigger point guards with Dunn and Rubio. I would take Rubio off the court on defense when there's a big guard. You know, Chris Dunn, certain matchups, Chris Dunn does a lot better. I'm trying to remember the game where Dunn came in and just stymied the, the larger point guard uh, that uh, was toasting Rubio. Um, it was only it was in the last it five It was games. McCollum. For oh, yeah, while. that's right. It was McCollum. It wasn't even a large which, guy. Which right, feels right. weird to say because McCollum scored 43, but it no, was but in the second quarter that he— much better. Yeah, right. and then in the third quarter, Tibbs didn't bring him back in until there was two minutes left. So there is that. I mean, and there's also Tibbs— I think it's one of the things of it's the kind of season that is remarkable in that um, things keep happening over and over and over again without a lot of change. And at the same time, it's very, very hard to draw any conclusions. You would think that those two things would not be the same. But uh, what one of the conclusions you can draw is that above all else, Tom Thibodeau wants his core on the court together as often as possible and wants to speed this development. And I think, you know, if he owns a dog, the dog is almost dead by now because he comes home and kicks something. And, uh, you know, he has got to be phenomenally frustrated uh, with the way things have gone with this team. And I know he's saying, well, fuck this man. I'm going to keep this up. I'm pounding the rock until the rock Isn't breaks. It, that's his line. We're going to keep pounding, right? Right. Yeah. I feel like last night was the most frustrated post-game that I've ever seen him talking to the media. Uh, except for Charlotte. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Like Good point. Mm-hmm. Charlotte, he was ready to hit something. <laughs> yeah, his, that, do- his dog. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, I was trying to look at a few different things before I came over here, and one of them was their, the clutch stats on NBA. Dot com and their offensive rating in clutch situations, I think, was like ninety two, and their defense is one eleven or something. I mean, it's horrible. They're the worst. They're the worst clutch team in the NBA. They're the page doesn't even come up when yeah, you try to search they're, it. They're off, but their <laughs> offense plummets while their defense stays just the same horrible level essentially. So it's their offense that gets worse. Their defense stays bad. Which and Utah's an example, right? Yeah, and and you see that Wiggins offense and the sort of fans at home are and. You know, those of us just having opinions think that the Wiggins thing might be the problem. Some people think that. I tend to like the idea of developing in that role just because he's going to, you know, if you want him to hit his potential, it involves making plays. But when you have Ricky Rubio on the court and you have a big man in Gorgie Jang who's not a three-point shooter as the non-screener role guy a lot of them, or either one of them, Cat's not even shooting the three that well this year, but they have a very non-shooting surrounding cast. I mean, early in the, I know Tom Thibodeau knows this because he talks all about he talked all about it in the preseason. He talked about you know when you, Wiggins and Carl need to have shooters around them so they have space. So it's something he's explicitly said, and yet he's not doing it. So the question is why? And one of the obvious reasons is his two point guards can't shoot, and he just got to have one out there because Wiggins isn't a good enough dribbler to handle a full court pressure defense. But he doesn't put Tyus Jones out there, which he can shoot. Um, is that, isn't that perplexing? Like why doesn't Tyus play more? Well, I think the, odd, the obvious answer, uh, the, the most obvious or likely answer is just that he's not in Tibbs's mix. I mean, he's just yeah. Ricky's the veteran, and Dunn is the guy who's being groomed, and that's Dunn's his pick. That's that's it. That's it ends there. <laughs> yeah, yes, he's shown signs. I think. Yeah, Dunn is progressing. I think that. Um, I think the way Tibbs works, 
if Tyus Jones continued to play well, it would be a problem rather yeah. than a good thing. He does not want that distraction yeah. as he's building this team. He's made the determination that the ceiling on Tyus Jones is not high enough for what he wants to do. I think he feels the same way about Rubio, which is why he's given Rubio backhanded compliments from the moment he got to be head coach. He doesn't believe either Tyus or Rubio is his point guard when he steps into the sunlight with his team. He continues to want to believe that Dunn is. And, you know, if if there's wishful thinking on Tom Thibodeau's part, it involves Chris Dunn all the time. Uh, it may be that it's wisdom instead of wishful thinking and that we'll see that. We haven't seen it lately. Uh, Dunn has a hard time shooting, but he is a disruptor. He is, I tweeted last night, I think he's an elite disruptor. I think he's somebody who can... He can change the game with defense. But you said offensively. You said this in a podcast. You won't throw a pass you don't see coming. Like right, exactly. Yeah. He uh, won't. No, I mean, and that's Rubio, and that's highest. <laughs> but then again, you know what? If you listen to Tibbs postgame or even, you know, like uh, pregame, is, he doesn't want the passes you don't see coming. Right. He wants the system run. Find, you know, make a shot. If you don't have a shot, find somebody with a better shot. You know, it's the the you know the Spurs thing about you know make a a great shot instead of a good shot by passing, and don't skip the step. I mean, Ru- the thing about Rubio is he goes from A to C. He goes from a, a mediocre shot to a fantastic shot. If somebody can see it coming, the problem with all that is, um, in the long run, it disrupts your system. If you have a guy like Rubio, he's freelancing a little bit too much. Um, he's very good at what he does, but come playoff time or even, you know, not then, you know, you can stop. If, if you're game planning to stop Rubio on offense, I don't think it's that hard despite how good of a passer he is. So it's not that I disagree with Tibbs. I have a soft spot for Rubio because I think he's really been one of the best things about this team for a long time. And I think he got kind of a raw deal. Uh, you know, this year. Which time? Which time? Yeah. <laughs> well, just in terms of, uh, you know, I don't think, I think everybody kind of knows that he's not going to be here two years from now. If yeah. he is, it'll be a great surprise and it'll be probably coming off the bench. So, you know, he's he's fulfilled his role. Now he's kind of playing out the string. Uh, he is in a position to enable three really good offensive players to play a little bit better. And every now and then he'll come up with a game, you know, that uh, is a classic Rubio game, and it's a joy to see. It's an aesthetic pleasure to watch Ricky Rubio play play point guard. Um, there was something that you said that I think should be discussed more often and with more nuance, so I'm going to go to Andy with the next question. Um, with Levine and Wiggins' redundancy, what do you mean by that exactly? Or, Andy, what do you think Britt re- means by that? Because Tom's asked that question. Timmy and I have talked about it a little bit. But I think it should be discussed more, and I, I don't exactly know. Because they're different players. Mm-hmm. Are you saying they score the same way? Are you saying that they need you know that they need to have the ball? I mean, wh- what is this? Say more. Well, I guess if I was talking about it, I would say, for one thing, size-wise, they aren't. neither one of them is an ideal small forward, I don't think. I think in today's NBA in particular, 
you saw what like Giannis looks like, or um, that's an anomaly. In Brandon itself. Ingram, I mean, uh, um, Gallinari. Uh, some of these guys play the four too. That sort of three four swing spot is kind of becoming a a really nice thing to have. And defensively, last year we kind of had it with Prince. He couldn't do anything on offense, but you start you're starting to see it. The with all the switching and with all the player and ball movement, having guys that sort of just occupy more sort of space with their their reach is a is a nice thing. So defensively, I think they are hurt as a tandem because neither one of them is talented enough to play the one uh, in terms of a true point guard. So you have to play them at the two three, and then you end up with an undersized lineup, and they don't seem to compensate for that very well, at least not yet. But also, just I think it's. Theoretically, I think they could be an offensive, a synergistic offensive pair just because Wiggins is more of a slasher and Levine's more of a shooter. But right now, in terms of what's playing out on the court, I think it is a little bit more of just a sheer expectation of points that each of them has. And I think the idea of having 20 to 21, 22-year-old tandems that all want kind of points is a big thing. I think that's kind of inherently can be problematic. Tibbs always talks about how they need to learn to make the, the make the right play, and so it's clearly something he talks about. I, that's one of the more uh, apparent thoughts that he has about his team is double team comes, make the easy pass, that type of thing. So I think just a, sort of a very general basic idea of that they both want to score a lot and they're both wings is not necessarily a good thing, particularly when they have such a gifted post player as well. Cause the the 320-point scores thing is going to be the team's PR campaign all year. Yeah. Three twenty-one-year-olds, they all average twenty a game. I don't know if that's a good thing. Might be. I mean, it shows they have talent, but I think you might rather have two of them. <laughs> and a very yeah, again, very so would basic. The, would the suggestion be that that one of them needs to sacrifice how many shots they take, or is it is it a, a systematic? I issue? liked what you said about the defense thing, though. I but, don't know yeah. if you can. I don't know if they can do that much about it, other than try to be unselfish. But it's more organizational, whether that's ideal or not. Or top to bottom, and then the next layer down would be coaching, and that would be staggering them more because they don't hardly get staggered much. They take now he's taking Levine out like two minutes, three minutes before Wiggins. Right, a little bit of a stagger there, but oh, that that trio plays together a ton. And uh, if Levine say came off the bench, came to into the game six minutes in, and Wiggins got to play with Wiggins Towns as sort of the two main guys, I think they'd have a little bit cleaner sort of feel for their role throughout the game. But I don't know. Might be nitpicking. Maybe it's just great to have three guys that can score so much at such a young age. The defense part where they're both yeah. undersized at the two three, or maybe well, one of them is undersized depending on who they're guarding on the matchups. Mm-hmm. That's a key point in the redundancy conversation. A very astute point that I had not realized before. Did that just about cover it, Britt? Did he? Uh... Well, there's one other I think point. I mean. The obvious things are that, you know, they're both scorers, they're both offensive-minded, they're both not very good defensive players, although they both have the athleticism and occasionally the attitude to play good defense. Um, But the biggest thing for me, I guess, after the defensive thing, you know, Andrew Wiggins, I think, could be a very good defensive shooting guard. Uh, I don't think he can be a very good defensive small forward, at least not for a while. Zach Levine, I don't know what his defensive ceiling is. Um, I hesitate to criticize with flat statements because I think his improvement has already surprised me some. But what I come back to is there's no shepherd and pupil here. you got two young guys who need guidance, and neither one have that guidance because they're playing with each other. 
And I think that's the redundancy that really hurts this team right now is that if you had a guy who was taking the big shot um, because they had earned it, you know, if you had, um, you know, a Clay Thompson. Or even to, Gordon Hayward to tie it back right. in the last I night. I mean, if you think about what – imagine Wiggins and Orlevine with a really, really capable wing player, somebody who really played defense well, knew how to knock down that shot when it was necessary, could calm people down. Um, you know, that's why I say Clay Thompson is an example of somebody like that. Thompson – is the third or fourth option on that Golden State team right now, and yet he's put in 50 a game, you know, had probably the greatest quarter in NBA history. His ego is not built that way. That's a great model. Um, And neither Wiggins nor Levine have that model right now. If anything, they have a slight competition. And I just don't think it's a good mix. And when we, just to go back, because I just, I'm going to forget it, otherwise the defensive part of it, we got, I, I don't know if it was 600 minutes last year when Kevin Garnett was on the court. I mean, it was not a tiny amount of time to see what defense looks like for Towns and Wiggins on the court surrounded by a rangier small forward and Prince and a true rim protector communicator and KG. And they played better defense than the Spurs. I mean, it was ridiculously good. I mean, I don't know how many of KG's minutes Wiggins was on the court, but I'm guessing it was 90-plus Almost percent of all of it. Yeah, yeah. so... Wiggins has been on the court during phenomenal, ridiculously good defense, and that doesn't mean he's the cause of it, but he also wasn't bringing it down because you can't really get better than that, however they were playing. So you can't really say Wiggins was anything but at least a part of it. So he's he's been on the court for great defense. So has Towns. Um, Levine hasn't, I don't think. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, if, if Levine would have been in Wiggins' spot, I'm sure they wouldn't have been just much different but i'm guessing probably worse but but either way i think when wiggins is slotted next to some intelligent big defenders um i think he knows what to do yeah so would that not have happened say hypothetically if levine started at shooting guard well, last was, year that that's yeah. i guess i think a little less so probably less so. okay i'm it's Maybe that's unfair to him, but it's yeah. consistent with if for no other worse. reason then uh, wiggins played a lot more at kansas than zach did at yeah. ucla yeah Fair enough. Tim, anything to add to the redundancy deal or any questions? I think it's been covered pretty well. I guess, like you said, Zach, I hadn't even considered just size-wise how they might not fit together, at least in the starting lineup. Uh, And then to Britt's point, ego-wise, would either of them be willing to partake in coming off the bench even in, in a you know almost like a Manu Ginobili kind of way where you're playing like a starter but you're just you're getting staggered for the sake of matchups and uh defensively I, I don't know if that would be the case uh I don't know if it's going to be tried I don't know if it would work but I mean ideally you if if you're able to bring in somebody to start with I would assume Wiggins would be the starting shooting guard next to him, sort of of the mold that you described, Britt. That would have to be the ideal. Well, the sample sizes are very, very small. And and then, and Andy and I have actually talked about this. We sit next to each other most games. You guys are inseparable at Wolves games. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we're prison buddies. <laughs> and so uh, – and so um, – but um, we had talked about uh, when – Wiggins or Levine has been dinged up. Like the last two preseason games, Wiggins didn't play. 
and the team just looked like world beaters. If you recall, they just destroyed Memphis and Charlotte, two teams that promptly beat them two weeks later in the regular season. Right. Um, and this year, the only uh, sample that we have is Levine being out for the Lakers game. You plug in Belitza as a tall three, and you move Wiggins down to the shooting guard, and they destroy the Lakers. Um, so there is something to be said for the idea that you uh, get a lot more length on the floor. Um, you know, uh, it's a decent experiment that could be made right now of putting Belitza at the three and bringing uh, Levine off the bench. You could also argue that uh, Chris Dunn should get some um, uh, time. I wouldn't mind seeing Chris Dunn guard twos and threes um, and see Levine and maybe Wiggins, Shane Wiggins, in a, you know having to guard point guards instead or something because he's too light. Uh, Wiggins does get bodied. Chris Dunn, somebody tries to drive by Chris Dunn, they're usually in trouble. I mean, you know, when somebody tries to dunk on Chris Dunn, they're usually, I mean, he's got a mean streak, and I say that as a compliment. He blocked uh, Rudy Gobert at the rim last night. Right. He's he's actually got quite a list of people whose shot he's blocked who are very large people. Um, yeah, he's the beat, beat you up at the playground type style exactly. of basketball and the, player. And, and I used to call it the meat tenderizer unit. There's only three of them, but... Uh, <laughs> Back when they had Payne and Aldridge and Dunn come in together, it was only like a three or four game experiment because Payne is so bad otherwise. But <laughs> but Payne was you know busy you know whacking people around and uh, Aldridge was getting into the spirit and Dunn that's his way naturally. It really made a difference on some teams. You know, um, it's not quite hockey, thank God, uh, but it <laughs> is uh, a situation where you know you can get people. Uh, you know, physicality, Memphis has done it for years. Um, and, um, you know, there are teams that have a reputation of being very physical. If you have a DeAndre Jordan in the paint, don't say it doesn't make a difference. And a little bit different difference than Gobert, who blocks your shot but doesn't put you in, you know, doesn't put three you... feet down into the court. Yeah. Well, I I thought yesterday, yesterday we talked about it, and Andy, it's probably a recycled point from something you said now that I think about it. Why not play Aldridge with the starters? Yeah, well, at the beginning of the year, I thought there was a reasonable chance Rush and Aldridge would start. I definitely thought I was with you on the Rush. I obviously thing. just thought Tibbs was going to be more in terms of wing this year. I thought Tibbs would want to make the playoffs. I thought he'd be not big picture oriented enough, and he'd be too little picture oriented. And uh, that hasn't happened at all. It's been totally unbelievably not that way. So <laughs> everyone's preseason predictions. I can get a little bit of an excuse in my view because the lineup, we didn't know he was going to just disregard the veteran design. Well, and what did you conclude in your most recent column? Was this Tibbs' plan all along to try to well, evaluate uh, the big three? If not all along, I think um, the analogy I would make, I guess, is the year that uh, Ricky Rubio got hurt in the sixth game of the season. And they looked like they were going to be a really good team. And then Flip just totally... Uh, threw everything out the window and tanked hard. I don't think it's been that... But po- discreetly. I don't think... No, well, Levine at the point guard is discreet as that gets. Yeah. Um, I do think that it's not quite that bad, but I think that instead of saying we're going to tank for a draft pick, he said we are going to develop the kids as fast as possible, which is a form of not putting your best team on the floor and not trying to win games. And so um, 
I think it's pretty obvious sometimes that there are times when um, a right a, a move that could help the team win is not the move Tibbs is making. And every time that happens, the beneficiary is more time for a young player. So I think that's that's his priority, and it's who knows what's gonna, you know, if it if it leads to twenty five wins, um, you know, the poor bastards who try to sell tickets to Wolves, are you know, are, they're gonna face a really horrible off season. How many times can you? sell the this team's one year away from making that big leap like a couple people said this team was going to win was going to make the playoffs some guy said 46 wins in a seventh seed i I may have been of that group too (laughs) there might be two people who said that in this room i was gonna say vegas had him at 40 i mean that's yeah i had him at 46 in a seventh we said yesterday tim bontemps who i like a lot of the washington post right yeah he's not the new york post anymore said they were gonna win 50 games and carl anthony towns is gonna get mvp and i mocked whatever whatever his name is chris uh who's the guy hey ringer expert um chris vernon yeah I mocked Chris Vernon because Chris Vernon mocked Tim Bontemps. He was basically like, get out of here with that shit, Bontemps. You right. talk about the Timberwolves winning 50. And I mocked him for mocking him. And right. now now I'm sitting here with an egg on my head. One thing about Tibbs, though, and wanting to win and stuff is he jerks the bench around when they're not playing well, doesn't do that to the starters. No. Which, the fact that he does it to the bench at least signals that he wants to win games. Because when when things are going to hell with the bench on the court in the in the late third quarter, early fourth, he just gets them off the court, and that's when you get forty minutes for the starters. But the reverse does not happen. He does not pull the starters off the court when they're having bad stretches. Which it's almost like it's almost like he's halfway and I want to win this game mode. It's if the starters are going to win it for me great but i the bench can only lose it for me yes well if not the beginning it because the evidence that it wasn't that way from the beginning was how good he of a bench unit how simpatico that five player bench looked when they got on the court during the preseason i mean you had aldridge and belitza and Bozzi and Dunn and uh, Rush, and they all had specific roles. You could see Belitsa was going to be the point forward for that group because Chris Dunn couldn't pass, but they had beef, they had uh, physicality, um, they had outside shooting with Rush. Uh, It looked like a tidy little unit, and they played that way. And then Rush got turf toe, and Rubio got hurt, and Dunn went in, and done shit the bed so badly that I think Tibbs began to play re- Tyus. He began to recalibrate uh, <laughs> yeah. Dunn's, uh, you know, uh, uh, arc of progression. And, right, they even, you know, did the poison pill of playing Tyus and uh, <laughs> turned out to be an elixir. And, um, you know, so you have uh, that, that situation. So I would not say from the beginning he was uh, thinking uh, the three kids, the, the core three are bust. But um, when you're six and eighteen, boy, you know, you better have a fallback position, and your fallback position is, you know, these motherfuckers are going to learn how I play basketball. <laughs> that, are they going to use the pick, or do you think that's a trade out? No, they they get well. I don't know. Explain it. I I, I have no idea. I can't say what I wanted to. The fascinating part about this here is. 
the Chibido beating his dog when he gets home. Like, this has got to be a huge internal conflict for him, right? Because he's obviously invested in the outcome of the game for all of the obvious reasons when it's happening. But then he seems, as Tom's mentioned a bunch of times, pretty damn composed when he sits there and he explains what he explains in the press conference. Or, or when he's coaching the players, like when he's just sitting there in front of them. Yeah, he seems like a pretty composed guy. So the internal conflict he must face or has to deal with, or I don't know who his therapist is if he has one. I mean, there are things that he could do to remedy the team's struggles, and he's consciously not doing them, which is fun to think about. I'm not sure how much certain things dawn on him. I mean, I don't mean to underestimate him, but when he starts talking last night about brushing Krasinski aside and just kind of like shaking his head and saying, you do your job. No excuses. You do your job. I don't think the idea that maybe his players are trying to impress him and that when he yells at them, it causes them some type of anxiety or something. Like that possibility, I don't think even enters as no. that's not part. We don't worry about that. You do your job. Like that's the end of the analysis. <laughs> so I might be underestimating him. Maybe when he's away, when he goes home and thinks about, you know, maybe he gets kicks to his a, dog. Yeah, well, I don't know. And he comes from the Van Gundy school, and I've, I remember hearing Stan Van Gundy on a Zach Lowe podcast talking about things he's done in his off seasons to sort of get better at dealing with players, like the the disciplinary. You know, not disciplinary. That's the wrong word. Yelling and instant spaz outs and stuff like i think stan van gundy acknowledged he had to get better at that and i don't know if tibbs has ever had that reflection maybe he does and it's ongoing but he clearly is not uh, he's not managing it well right now because there's no benefit to spazzing out when zach levine didn't see the ball hit the rim and so the shot clock's winding down and he was still talking about that after the game like that's not something you yell at your player about if your player didn't see the ball hit the rim and like who cares? He'll see right, it next right. time. You know, there's nothing good from that type of a of a tantrum. So he's always been up to, like he's noted and known and famous for being the most obsessive mm-hmm. basketball coach in the NBA. One of the most obsessive coaches in sports, I'd imagine. Uh, was he? Because I don't remember in Chicago. Obviously, he was in a lot of ways the same guy. Was he as frustrated? noticeably frustrated in Chicago while they were having success? Is it the lack of success, or is this just who he is? I think it could be different with Chicago because he doesn't have the young players. So right. he's not, he's not That's as much. my question. Was he, did he still appear to be this frustrated, for lack of a better term, uh, consistently in Chicago just because that's his – like I think you said yesterday after the game to me, like his default mode. Yeah, I think in Chicago it was always endearing because – his teams were always outperforming, right. and it almost looked like this is just this tortured guy who's great and he gets good results. His players kind of like him, and it's usually they're either winning 60 games or they got major injuries and they're winning 45 games. It's always a feel-good result. Mm-hmm. This is the first time where it's been flipped on its head, where the results are lagging way behind expectations, and so it's. I think it's going to go on to take more and more of a negative feel. If... The, the same problems kill him. Yeah. He just hates to see the same thing, right? I mean, you guys all say that? I, I think you could argue that he hasn't changed a bit. It's just that what he's watching is radically different. He's always been somebody who tears his head off when somebody makes a stupid mistake. It's just now it's happening 50 times a game rather than 20. And so you go, wait a minute, this guy is far more freaked out than he was in Chicago. Well, it's because he's seeing far more things that cause him to freak out. All that said, I do think he's a little bit shell-shocked. I do believe that if you watch him on the court now, 
he is anticipating something to argue about. Whether it's against the refs, whether it's against one of his players, he looks really embattled on the sidelines. He does not look like somebody who has a plan and is saying, if I just do this a little bit more, things will help out. When Tibbs is most in control, he's saying one thing over and over again, like ice, ice, or get it, get it, or roll, go after him. roll, yeah, roll. That, <laughs> that's Tibbs under, under control. Tibbs not under control is somebody throwing his hands up in disgust because yep. a ball, a jump shot, doesn't go in. You know, there's nothing anybody can do about that. I guess what I would say is that um, we have to look at the stakes involved. I think that's really what it comes down to is that Tibbs would love to win now, but he also has to make some enormously consequential decisions relatively soon. He's got to decide whether or not these three guys can, in fact, work together. If they can't, then he's got to get rid of one of them. And that is a huge decision that could look really bad. So he's got to find out. He's got to put together as much baseline knowledge right in front of his eyes of how these guys do so that he's satisfied that he's done his due diligence and he can make a decision as to what he needs to do. And I think he all this focus right now on um, these guys being together, oftentimes with uh, Bozzi and Dunn in the same way, I think he already knows what Rubio can and can't do. Um, I don't think he knows fully yet whether, you know, Bozzi, the three, core three, and even Belitza for that matter. You know, I mean, all those guys are kind of works in progress. Dunn's certainly a work in progress. Uh, so the more he knows, the better decisions he can make in the off season. And if he can't get something out of what he sees, he's got a lot of money to go get it. And if he knows that these people can and can't do things and what they can and can't do in relation to each other, then he has a better idea of what to do at free agency. But those are, you know, he's not only the coach now. He can't blame the front office if they trade the wrong guy or sign the wrong guy. It's all on him now. And so I think that's why you see a combination of public frustration while it's happening and more measured approach when he is post-game or probably in practice. And it's not even just uh, proactive, needs to decide if he wants to go a different direction. It might be reactive because I imagine other teams are calling about Levine or Wiggins or thing, you know, mm-hmm. it's a setting a bar. Or, you know, if if Demarcus Cousins has gone the block, you know, they might call the Timberwolves. That's the one I always have to bring up, just because I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, but I yeah. mean, there are, <laughs> there are players around the league that have been with their team for a while where it's not going well, and they're going to get moved at some point, and they might want to. The Timberwolves might be on the first five on the first list of five teams i get a call you know they don't have the draft picks that the celtics have but they've got young talent so opportunities might be on the way to go uh to add somebody exciting too yeah speaking of trades i wouldn't call it a blockbuster but um kyle corver to the Cavs seems like cheating it's not fair well they gave up a lot well they gave up a have what what's likely to be what a heavily protected first rounder that'll likely fall in the twenty three to thirty range, Mo Williams, who might 
never play a game in a Hawks uniform, mm-hmm. and Mike Dunleavy. Is that a lot? I mean, I know in return they're getting a above 35-year-old shooter, but it's you're getting this for LeBron's prime. This is or the end of I it. I think you have to play a certain way when Kyle Culver's on the court. You do. Uh, well, if you don't, then I think you want to de-emphasize him. Um, he is somebody who will kill you if you don't pay attention to him. Yes. Um, and that is valuable because he'll magnetize at least one defender away from double teams on LeBron and Kyrie. Um, defensively, they're already uh, fishy. You know, and, and Cor- a backcourt of Corver and Kyrie Irving ranks among the worst defensive backcourts in the NBA. That's something that uh, LeBron I'm- and Tristan Thompson, you know, are both really, if not uh, with LeBron, he's elite. Tristan Thompson does enough things well that he is an A minus, an A defender. Um, Kevin Love is Kevin Love. Well, Kevin Love, um, again, they've learned how to play with Kevin Love. But understand, if you're bringing um, Corver in, you're, you, the person whose minutes get cut is Shumpert. And Shumpert's a defensive guy. So, um, you know, when you, if you look at defense and defense wins games, um, you could argue that they are going to have to make some adjustments. And, you know, the flip side, of course, is you could use Corver exactly the way you're using Dunleavy, which is as a guy off the bench – who does certain things, uh, and if that's the way they use him, then I think they're marginally better and they've sacrificed a little. Um, what I find kind of ironic about all this is Atlanta's won six in a row, and all of a sudden they're in first place, all the while saying, you know, we got to get, you know, we got to peel these guys off. You know, no more Millsap, cause, you know, Corver's gone. Uh, meanwhile, you know, their system rolls on. Did Millsap go somewhere? Did I miss that? No, not, not yet. yet. Not no. yet. Might be on the block or. I think I've read just about every team has gotten, you know, their local paper. Team X has expressed interest in Paul Millsap, which is, like, the least shocking thing of all time. Everyone should be interested in Paul Millsap. Because Millsap will be a free agent at the end of the year, right? I believe so. Is it that he he has an option? I think he has a player option that he's already said he's going to not exercise. He's going to opt out. Can he opt in as part of a trade preemptively? Didn't Dwight Howard do that once or something? I don't know. I, I I think it's just assumed that he's going to opt out. So if you're getting him, you're getting him for the second. Well, half the of cap the goes up, and financially, yeah. he, so could, he would have no reason to opt in. Yeah, no, that would be. Ask him if he wants to join the Spurs and see what he says. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> or even could yeah, it'd be funny if he reunited with Horford in in Boston. Mm-hmm. Could that could happen? So well, thanks for coming in, Britt Robson. You, if you're listening, still listening, you know where to find his work, Min Post. Uh, Andy Grimsrud has been writing at A Wolf Among Wolves this year, although I will always introduce him as Punch, punch Trunk Wolf. Uh, thanks for coming in. I think... Uh, Our pleasure. Yeah, we yeah. we do this round three or four every Sunday, so... Anytime. Got to get... Swing by. Got, Thank you. Yeah, swing by on your way through. Tim usually buys the after beers. <laughs> or I usually buy your yeah. Tim. Yeah. Or, or, that's another story that's for a, another That's day. another story for a different pod. CC Club, unofficial sponsor. So... Uh, for for Andy, for Britt, for for Timmy, for Tommy, uh, my name is Zachary Bennett. This has been a collab edition, Locked On Wolves Wired, a uh, mixture of Locked On Wolves and Wolves Wired. So long. You are Locked On Timberwolves, your daily podcast on the Minnesota Timberwolves, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
Ace's the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.